Have you ever asked yourself the question, what's my greatest disappointment? What's the greatest disappointment I've experienced in life? I was doing some looking around on people and their thoughts about their greatest disappointment. And I ran across someone who put this on an online forum. My greatest disappointment is that this is it. This is all life is. You can do everything you're supposed to do. Go to school, learn stuff, get a job, meet someone, fall in love, buy a house, travel, and it all just ends up meh. M-E-H, that's what they wrote. It all just ends up meh. It reminds me of the words of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes where he says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. The the word really means meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything, when I look at life just from a horizontal perspective, just looks meaningless and it's empty. I can do all those things. I can go to school and get a job and fall in love and have kids and travel and have all I want. And it all comes down to a sense that it is still meh. There's something more to life. Now, as believers, we would say, well, their life is meh because there's nothing going on vertically. They have a horizontal existence, but they're not doing anything with their spiritual life. But what happens when someone who has at least a semblance and a knowledge of God experiences their greatest disappointment is God. With how things have worked out for them. Their disappointment is with God and how he's acting and running his universe and how their life experience looks at this moment. Well, that's exactly what was being experienced 400 plus years before Jesus came as we look at the people that Malachi was writing to in Malachi chapter 2. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse number 17. And and we're really going to think about disappointment with, with God because that's exactly where these people are today. Malachi chapter 2 and verse number 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, How have we wearied him? When you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them, or else where is the God of justice? This is their disappointment right there. See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Now the Lord is speaking. The Lord will, then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offspring of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. I will come to you 
in judgment. And I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies, because I, the Lord, have not changed. You descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. With that, let's pray. God, speak to us today, and may we learn, be challenged, encouraged, and may I even say be convicted as we open the truth of your word today. Speak to us. In your name, amen. I'm sure at some time in everybody's life, they have asked something like, God, what's going on? Why did this happen to me? Why does it look like these people are doing so well and I'm struggling so much? You have your uh, friends on Facebook and you see, man, it looks like life is going so great for them. And here you're sitting in church this morning and life is a real struggle. They're posting pictures, you know, from the beach today and how wonderful and great life is. It's an age-old question. God, why is it that the righteous seem to be suffering while the wicked seem to be prospering? God, where is you? Do you delight in evil people? Is that why you're treating them so well? That really is the heartbeat of the accusation in Malachi chapter 2 and verse number 17. It's an age-old question. Before this, hundreds of years before this, the psalmist Asaph would deal with this in Psalm 73, where he would say, truly God's good to Israel, but he would also go on and say, as for me, man, I almost stumbled and fell away from the faith when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73, which is my favorite psalm, by the way, He looks and he says, God, I see the prosperity of the wicked, and this just doesn't look fair. I mean, they're bad people, they're doing bad things, and yet it looks like they're healthy and wealthy and wise. And look at me, God. I'm trying to do what's right. I'm clinging up my heart, and yet you look at me as unclean. I'm trying to walk the straight and narrow, and yet I seem like I'm being disciplined or chastened. It just doesn't seem fair. But in Psalm 73, in verse number 17, it says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God. That Asaph, when he was searching for God's will and direction in his life and searching for these hard answers of his life, walks into the sanctuary and says, God, I've got to get with you. And when he gets with God, it says, then I understood their end, the end of all the wicked. They're having their best life now. It might look like everything is going great and wonderful, but this is as good as it gets for them. And then round verse number 23 or so, he begins to remember the truth of God. God, you are with me. God, you hold me by my right hand. God, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God, you are with me, and God, you hold my hand, and God, you guide me, and God, you secure me, and God, you are the strength of my life, and God, you are my provider. And when he has that moment of understanding that, his life has changed. But we see a different heart attitude as we look at 
these Jewish people in the days of Malachi. As he is preaching to God's covenant people, the Jewish people, they are not coming searching heart answers. Instead, they are lobbying accusations. Now, you already know what's going on in their life as we've looked at the book. Remember, they begin the book by doubting God's love. And then they dishonor God in worship. They bring lame and sick sacrifices, and the priests are offering them up, and the priests aren't teaching true instruction, and they're showing partiality, and it's kind of, hey, look, we're the priests. We can be as worldly as anybody else and still go and do your sacrifice. This is how cool we are. And then they're being disloyal in marriage. That's the first two and a half chapters of Malachi. Doubting God's love, dishonoring God in worship, disloyal in marriage. And now they come to the place where they question God and his justice, his goodness. Let me just share something with you that I I think that that if you're going to understand this, that you need to grab onto. God's perfect justice will perfectly prevail in his perfect time. While we're here on earth, everything may not seem fair. But mark it down. God's perfect justice will prevail perfectly in his perfect time. So we look at Israel. And the first thing that we see in verse number 17 is their accusations against God's justice. Notice with me in verse number 17 of Malachi chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words. The word wearied there means the laboring to the point of exhaustion. It's like you have worn out, you have worn me out. I am exhausted and fatigued and I am out of patience. From a human standpoint, that would be true. Obviously, we know God doesn't get tired and God doesn't uh, uh, ever get weary. But the picture is, as you are wearing me out with your words. And now, what are their words? When you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight. Everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight. When people do evil, God says it's good. There's a question of God's holiness in this. Hey, when, when, God, when, when people do evil... You say they're doing good. We question your holiness. Not only that, we read the next phrase. And he is delighted with them. So everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them. God delights in evil people. God delights in the evil that they're doing. That's a question of his holiness. Now God delights in evil people. That's a question of his righteousness. If you look over in passages like Psalm 15, Lord, who can dwell in your tent and who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly practices righteousness and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Practices righteousness. God, these people aren't being righteous. What's up with this? You're delighting in evil and you're delighting in the evil people. And so he comes to that next point where they ask the question, Where is the God of justice? So 
What they're doing is they're questioning God's holiness, God's righteousness, and God's justice. What they're really doing is saying, God, we have some real issues with you. So the heart of their accusation, the heart is, God, we don't think that you're as holy as you say you are. We don't think you're as righteous as you say you are. You're not as just as you say you are. And God, your sovereignty basically stinks. That's, that's really what they're saying. God, you delight in evil things. You're delighting in evil people. And you're not, uh, you're, you're not showing justice. Look at us. We're, we're your people. We're the covenant people. And look at them. They look like they're doing so good. God, this isn't fair. Where is the God of justice? The heart of their accusation. But let's take another reminder here. Let's think about the problem of the heart of those who are the accusers. (laughs) The problem with the accusers' hearts. I just mentioned them. They're the ones who are doubting God's love and dishonoring God in worship and disloyal in their marriage, and yet they're the ones throwing the accusation. God, we know how to run the world better than you do. You delight in evil things, you delight in evil people, and you're not showing justice. This doesn't even look right in any way, shape, or form. Then we look at the heart of the accusers. You know, it's easy to make accusations. And sometimes when you hear an accusation or you hear a statement, You have to go back and look at the heart of the one who said it. So, Vladimir Putin. He has said that he is in Ukraine for a peacekeeping mission for the denazification of the country of Ukraine. That's that's his line, okay? The problem is, is we all know this is not a peacekeeping mission. And we all know that the denazification of the Ukraine is not really an issue since the president is the grandson of a Holocaust survivor. But that's the word. That's the accusation. See, the reality is, is this. Sin blinds us to the truth of who we are and to the truth of who God is. Sin blinds us to the truth of who we are so that we say things so that people will believe us or hear us or have a voice toward us, but we're blind. Sin blinds us to to the truth of who we are and to the truth of who God is. On Thursday, I read through the book of Judges. And as I'm reading through the book of Judges, obviously you 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 got uh, Othniel and then Ahud, the left-handed judge, and Man, he sticks that sword into King Eglon, who's real chubby, and the knife goes over. All kinds of things happening, and there's Deborah and Gideon. And then in Judges and Jephthah, and then you come in, in, in Tola and Jer, and, and then you come in, in Judges 13 to the story of Samson. And Samson, Chuck Swindoll calls him a he-man with a she-weakness. I think that's probably the best description that I've heard of, of Samson. All right, so you see Samson, and throughout his life, he has, the Bible records a lot of bad choices that he made. 
But as we come to the end of, of Samson as, as the judge, we find that he is in the lap of Delilah and she is, you know, caressing his head and letting him wander off into a sleep. And she says, Samson, what's your kryptonite? I mean, what's the secret of your strength? Now he has a choice. He's already lived for the flesh for a good chunk of his life from what we see in Scripture. But now he has a choice. And, and he says, well, if you tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings. So she ties him up with seven fresh bowstrings. And then Samson, hey, the Philistines are upon you. Man, he breaks those things like pieces of yarn. And then he says, well, if you tie me up in new ropes. So she ties him up in new ropes. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He breaks those ropes just like their string. And she begins to, to weep and say, oh, you won't tell me the secret of your strength. So then he gets a little closer. If you weave my hair and, you, you know, just do it just right, I won't have strength. So she weaves his hair all up. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he shakes his hair out of whatever kind of weave that thing was in. And, uh, you know... You had to think at that moment when he stands up to fight, he's got to look pretty interesting, all right? Uh, that's the permanent that didn't turn out right, you know? Uh, so so he, he then clobbers, the Samson, the Philistines are upon you, he clobbers them. Now listen, that woman three times has tried to find his kryptonite out, has put him in a, quote, vulnerable, vulnerable position, and then said the Philistines are upon you. Now I don't know about you, but... Man, three strikes and she would be out. There's got to be better fish in the sea somewhere, you know? I mean, like, this may not be the right chick for me. But he's blind. Sin has blinded. You understand that long before Samson's eyes are put out, he's blind. He's blind to sin, the sin in his own life and the sinful consequence that will come. So finally, she nags on him, and he relents and says, I've never had a haircut, you cut my hair. And then it's Samson, the Philistines are upon you, and he gets the ready to leap up, and the Lord has left him. Sin had blinded him. Sin can blind us. If we live in a a life of sin, we, we can become deluded where we begin to believe our own lies. And we can justify our own life position. We can justify what we do and how we do it and when we do it. We think we can intellectually or, or take the moral high road and just say, well, uh, judge not and be judged, you know, kind of throwing back at other people when they say anything to us. The challenge is, is, these folks' heart wasn't right. And yet they would accuse God. In their pride and their arrogance, they would say, God, your holiness stinks. Your righteousness stinks. Your justice stinks. Your rule stinks. God, meh. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Now, God, you can imagine, is wearied from this. I get tired of this kind of attitude you would get tired of this kind of attitude but the lord in his grace answers and so we see not only the accusation against god's justice but then we see the vindication of the lord the vindication of the lord against israel god says i'm going to give you an answer 
And so, in chapter 3, in verse number 1, he begins to unfold the answer. And what is God going to do? Notice in chapter 3, in verse number 1. See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. God says, here's my vindication. The first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to send my messenger. Now, the name Malachi means messenger, but I don't think he's talking about Malachi here. He's going to send his messenger who's going to come before me. Who's he talking about? I think he's talking about the one who Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, would say in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. There's the voice of one in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was going to come and prepare the way before me. He was going to prepare the way before the Lord and his coming. John the Baptist, the guy, you know, who was the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth, and he was born in their old age, and Zacharias was mute for many months, and then Elizabeth has this baby. His name will be John. She scrawls, or he scrawls it out, and now he can talk. John the Baptist, the one who is out in the wilderness wearing a camel hair robe, which had to be completely uncomfortable. He is eating locusts and wild honey, and he is preaching, repent, repent, you better turn to God. Repent, I'm preparing the way of the Lord. And then his disciples would leave and go to Jesus, and he would say, he must increase and I must decrease. That is John the Baptist. So God says, I am going to send my messenger, John the Baptist, and then he's going to send his son. God is going to send his son. He will send his messenger before me. I think here he's talking about Jesus and his first coming. Now, Jesus and his first coming, we know, born and laid in a manger and lives a perfect life, and he ultimately goes to the cross. Now, listen. The holiness and righteousness and justice of God that was questioned, now they all meet when Jesus goes to the cross. We find the holiness and justice and righteousness of God upon Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. Even Pilate would proclaim, I find no fault in him. And the Bible would remind us that the wages of sin is death, but Jesus never sinned. So Jesus should never have had to die. But 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says, Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. So there we find the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because I owed a debt I could not pay. I deserve to face the penalty for my sins, but someone stood up and said, I will take the penalty. So that when Jesus goes to the cross, the holiness and righteousness and justice and wrath of God are all on display as Jesus is there and he proclaims, it is finished. The debt has been paid in full. That's the picture. Jesus came the first time to reconcile man to himself and he did that through the cross and through God's just sacrifice of Jesus and him being pleased with that sacrifice. We can experience salvation 
The wages of sin for us is death, yes. But that would be eternal separation. But the gift of God is eternal life. That gift of God, it's a free gift for us. But that gift is through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it's because he paid the penalty. He paid the debt. I'm going to send my messenger before me. And this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to face the wrath of God to reconcile man to himself. But then, notice, as we picture the messenger coming before me, notice in in verse number one, about halfway through, then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in, see, he is coming. Now, I believe that now he is talking about Jesus' second coming. Jesus' second coming. That Jesus, the first time, he came and was laid in a manger, and he faced the cross. Now he's coming back as the sovereign king over all. Norman Geisler, who is a theologian, said that there are 1,845 verses in the Old Testament pertaining to the second coming of Jesus and 318 verses in the New Testament pertaining to the second coming of Jesus. So we have over 2,000 verses throughout the Bible that proclaim not just that Jesus is going to come the first time, but that he is coming again. And now we see the Lord. And where does it say he's going to go? We see him going to his temple. Now, what have they been doing in the temple? They've been messing around. They've been apathetically, half-heartedly worshiping. That's what they've been doing in the temple. They've been taking lame and sick and, and worthless offerings and throwing them before the Lord and thinking, look how good I am. I came to temple today. They're out there living immorally, but they're coming on Sunday or Saturday in that day. They're coming on Saturday, and they're bringing their sacrifice, and they're saying, I'm okay, you're okay. And now, he says, you all who've been playing temple or playing church for a long time, understand this. I'm coming to the temple. The messenger of the covenant is showing up. Now, notice what happens when Jesus comes this second time. Jesus was going to do three things. First off, he will humble the people. Notice in verse number three, about uh, halfway through, or verse number two, halfway through, sorry. It says he, and who, uh, but, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? Verse number two. Who can endure the day of his coming and who will be able to stand when he appears? He's saying this. Hey, you're throwing your accusations around now? Big shot now? Questioning my holiness, righteousness, and justice now? Waving your fist at my sovereignty because I'm not running the world good enough now? When I come, who's going to be able to stand up and say, yeah, God, I'm ready to take you on? Yeah, Jesus, Man, I'm I'm ready to stand up and defend my honor and defend myself. He says, who can stand and who can abide in my presence? At that moment, he says, I'm going to humble everybody. You pridefully can or proudly can speak now. 
You can throw your accusations. You can lob them like hand grenades. But there's coming a day when I'm going to show up and you're not even going to be able to stand in my presence. You're not even going to be able to be in my presence. It's going to be so awesome and wonderful. He is going to humble the people. But not only is he going to humble the people, but he's going to purify the priests. Notice what it says. He says, who can endure that day of his coming? Who's going to be able to stand when he appears? He will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levite. We're talking the priesthood here. And refine them like gold and silver. Two pictures he gives. One, he's showing up with fire. And he's going to refine them. This is a metallurgical picture. And he says, man, I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you in the fire. And I'm going to allow all the dross of your life to burn off. And you are going to be more pure like silver or like pure gold. I am coming to face your impurity and I am sending the fire. That's what he says. But not only is he coming because they're impure, but he's coming because they're unclean. And so he says, and I'm coming with launderer's bleach. He's coming with a strong lye soap, a strong bleach, you know. He's not coming with his Johnson shampoo, no more tears. He is coming with something strong. You got to be cleaned up. Why? Because after he purifies them and cleans them, then they're going to offer sacrifices that are pleasing to him. That's the ultimate picture. That's what he desires and that's what he wants. He's going to come humble the people. He's going to come purify the priesthood. But he's going to come and judge the sinful as well. Notice what he says in verse number 5. I will come to you in judgment. These should be words that if we do not know Jesus as Savior, should cause us to quake in our boots. I will come to you in judgment, and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, widow, fatherless, against those who deny justice to the resident alien. Four prominent sins he mentions. Four groups of folks. He says, first off, he's going to judge the sorcerers, those who are trafficking in demonic activity. Can I tell you today that around us, there is some kinds of fascination with the world of the occult. And we as believers are not to be messing with those kind of occultish themes and inviting them into our life. The first mention is, is he's judging the sorcerers. They were there in Malachi's day. They're there in our day. Listen, you don't need to be reading your horoscope and playing with tarot cards and messing with Ouija boards. And listen, there's a lot of movies that are glorifying the occult or trying to be scary and suspenseful using the occult or TV shows about ghosts and the occult. Listen, the picture for us is those are all off limits. That is 
trafficking in a demonic world that the Lord says, you as a temple of the Holy Spirit have no, no, no excuse for inviting that kind of stuff in. The sorcerers. Then he mentions the adulterers. He has just talked about these folks that we talked about last week. Last week, when we were in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, he talked about those who were divorcing their wives of covenant and marrying pagan, idolatrous women. So guys were trading in their old faithful wife for a, a new, younger, pagan woman. And he says, look, that is that is all out. That's, that's wrong. I'm going to come and I'm going to judge that. Then he says he's going to judge the liars. Those who bear false witness, or the real picture is, is those who commit perjury, those who do not tell the truth. You realize that truth really is, and trusting people is, is the foundation of relationships. Now, I don't know if you watch cop shows like I do, but if you watch cop shows like I do, you know, I watch the Catch a Smuggler show. My boys get tired of watching these kinds of things. So anyway, but I watch. Matter of fact, down in Atlanta, when they're down in Atlanta, I've, I have a couple of friends who work for the Department of Homeland Security, and so I've seen them on TV before, and I think, man, that's really cool there. But anyway, that's another story. All right, but they come in, and they got drugs that they're smuggling. But you know what? Someone else put them in there. I mean, it's their suitcase, but no, they didn't put that in there. That they, the, the whole thing is that, you know, they've never done anything wrong. So they just, I watch them, they just sit there and lie. God says he's going to judge the liars. And then he says that those who oppress, those who oppress and take advantage of the poor or the widow or the fatherless, those that are the disenfranchised of society, when you use your power to to negatively harm them, God says, I'm coming for you. James talks about this in, in the book of James. Those that are oppressing the poor, the power of political people who can do and pull strings and get away with it and hurt the most vulnerable in society. But we're reminded when Jesus comes, God's perfect justice will prevail perfectly in his perfect time. Jesus says, I will come and judge. Robert Ingersoll was an attorney, an orator, a writer. Matter of fact, he practiced law just across the river in the state of Illinois. He was a, a, a great orator known for uh, a lot of his writing was very much against Jesus. He was called the great agnostic. In one of his speeches, he took his watch and, and he said this, I'll give God a chance to prove he exists and is almighty. I challenge him to strike me in the next five minutes. And so he took his watch out, silenced. They said after his great powerful oration and him pulling out his watch, some people got uncomfortable and they left. And the time ticks, and the time ticks, and five minutes goes by. They said that a young man, when he was walking out, talked to a Christian lady who was there. And he said this, well, well, Ingersoll certainly proved something tonight, didn't he? And she said, yeah, he did prove something. He proved God 
isn't taking orders from atheists tonight. On July 21st, 1899, Robert Ingersoll, presumably from congestive heart failure, stepped into eternity. He met God. And the one who would wave his watch and the one who would defame the Lord Jesus and God's word and mock God would be reminded in Galatians 6, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. He who sows to the flesh will reap corruption. Those who sow to the spirit will reap life everlasting. And he found out that God's perfect justice prevailed perfectly in his perfect time. I don't know where you are today, but if you're a believer, you have the greatest call of your life to live in response that someone has taken the penalty for your sin. Someone out of his mercy has taken God's justice and wrath. And your life is to be one of gratitude for him. Not working our way to heaven, no, but living in such a way that we are so appreciative of what God has done for us. But if you don't know Jesus today, his justice will prevail. You can wave your watch, march in your parade, do your own thing, but there is coming a day when you'll meet him. So the question is, are you ready? With that, let's pray. God, thank you for our time and thank you for the truth. Lord, may we uh, be people uh, as believers who live with this heart of gratitude for all that you've done for us. Just recognizing your awesome grace as you took our penalty for sin and our wrath that we deserved. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, they're not prepared if he would come back again today. God, would you move on their heart today that today that they would receive Jesus as Savior. God, if there's anyone here who thinks they're getting away with anything, would you remind them otherwise? God, if there's anyone here who knows better, but they're doing their own thing, God, bring them to repentance. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.